The Good Problem, formerly known as Do Gooder, is a podcast series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. You'll hear me, Lee Matthews, getting curious about the ethics of doing good, the dangers of doing good, and how to do better at doing good. I've been working in the doing good sector for the last 15 years. In that time, I've set up an NGO in Cambodia, won a whole bunch of awards, burnt out, had two children, learned a lot of lessons, set up a consulting company, co-founded the Rethink Orphanages Network, traveled the world, written a book, and spoken to audiences globally. You can find me at www.leematthews.com. This is a bonus episode of the podcast, so it's a bit shorter than usual. Australia's Prime Minister Scott Morrison recently announced that he had secured 25 million doses of a potential COVID vaccine for Australia, and that these vaccines would be free for all Australians. During the announcement, he stated that the vaccine would be, and I quote, as mandatory as you could possibly make it, which of course set off a media storm and a wave of fear and uncertainty. He has since backtracked on that statement. However, the implications of a mandatory vaccination are very real. It got me thinking about vaccines and civil liberties, about the ethical implications of rushing a vaccine with unknown effects, and wondering what does a mandatory vaccine look like? Will it be the golden ticket for travel, employment, or even access to restaurants? What about childcare or school? I invited Dr. Jessica Kaufman, a research fellow in the Vaccine Uptake Group at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and an honorary fellow at the University of Melbourne. Her areas of expertise include vaccination-related communication and social sciences. Her current research includes exploring the experiences of children tested for COVID-19 and developing interventions to improve vaccine uptake in pregnant women, children with neurodevelopmental disorders, and people of migrant or refugee background. Welcome to the Good Problem podcast, Jess. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for coming on on such short notice. Uh, Before we jump in into what's likely to be a really interesting conversation and one that I've got a lot of interest in, uh, I want to start with a question that I ask all my guests. What does doing good mean to you personally? I think doing good means positively impacting someone else. So it doesn't have to be lots of other people and it doesn't have to be all the time or everything you think of. But I think that doing good is is creating a, a positive impact for someone else's life. And for you, is that something that you try to live kind of through your everyday life or is it something that you try to achieve through your work? I think I generally think more about it in my in my everyday life, actually. I ended up doing research and research about communication was sort of the first thing that I was doing research about. And I didn't necessarily go into that with this idealistic plan to improve the world or, or something like that. I just thought it was interesting and it was something I wanted to think about and sort of work in. But as my career has progressed and as I started focusing on vaccination in particular and communication about vaccination, I've become much more interested in making sure that the work that I do does have a positive impact. 
So why do you work in vaccinations? The very short answer is it was a project that came to me while I was a research assistant at La Trobe University. And I had a lot of opportunities to work in that project and it just became an area that I focused on. But I don't think that's the whole answer. I think I'm really interested in how we communicate and how we express ourselves and how we convince people to change their behaviours. Um, I originally studied advertising and I didn't like the idea of convincing people to buy stuff. But what I do think is really interesting is using that communication to change positive public health behaviors. So vaccination is just a really important and nuanced topic where communication has a really, has a, a huge amount of power, I think. So that's kind of why I've stayed in it. Yeah, I guess it's a pretty kind of controversial area to be working in. It it kind of elicits a lot of emotion for people. It can, yeah. I mean, I think vaccination is a topic that can be controversial, but I also think that we sort of in the media, I mean, we overblow how controversial it really is. You know, the vast majority of people are pretty supportive of vaccination. And so, yeah, so I don't think it's it's not so much of a, of a hyper-political topic, really. So let's jump into uh, yesterday's announcement by Australia's Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. He came out and said that Australia had secured 25 million doses of a potential COVID vaccination. And in a very off-the-cuff kind of way, he said very clearly that his intention would be that the vaccination will be mandatory. Now, as the day wore on, he backtracked, kind of reeled that in very quickly, but not before instilling a whole lot of uncertainty and fear in what is already a very fearful and uncertain population. It seems like there wasn't a lot of thought behind that comment. I think what we saw was an unrehearsed comment from the Prime Minister. He specifically said he wanted it to be as mandatory as possible. Now, I'm not sure if he personally wishes that and believes that, and that's why he said that, or if possibly he had not really thought through what mandatory would actually mean in this case. And I believe that the fact that we saw him reel that back over the course of just that day suggests that some some people within his his office probably said to him, this is a, a pretty big statement that you've just made um, and one that they were not probably planning on actually backing up. But I think it's a pretty ill-advised statement for him to have made at this point. That's a pretty big mistake for a prime minister of a country to make, right? Well, interestingly, mandatory vaccination or the concept of mandatory vaccination can be quite a political winner. So to many people, you know, I mentioned earlier that, that, you know, the majority of people support vaccination. And to some people, um, they support vaccination sort of to the exclusion of considering alternative perspectives on it or any sort of nuance on it. And so uh, when a politician announces something like mandatory vaccination, it feels like a no-brainer to some people, and they're actually really supportive of that statement. So I would say there's actually probably a, a large portion of the public who cheered when he said that. I think we're talking about something very different with a COVID vaccine than even 
when we were talking about childhood vaccines, um, which of course in Australia, we, we do have some um, uh, policies that essentially mandate childhood vaccines. So I don't know if, if the huge amount of the public was supportive of his statement, but I do think that uh, some people would have loved it. Yeah. So let's talk about what mandatory actually means when it comes to vaccines, because for me, immediately when I heard this statement by the Prime Minister, my first thought was, well, what conditions might need to be met before a mandatory vaccination becomes ethically defensible? Absolutely. It's actually, there is no firm definition of mandatory vaccination around the world. There's lots of policies that exist on sort of a continuum of, you know, incentives or disincentives all the way up to, you know, very, very few countries have what you would consider sort of a hard mandate where there's, for instance, a fine if you don't get this vaccine, that kind of thing, um, or legal consequences. And generally speaking, fines and legal consequences related to vaccination are just never equitable. They should, so I, I don't think that they really have a place in enforcing any sort of um, public health measure like vaccination. But in Australia, our experience of mandatory vaccination would come through the no jab, no pay policy, which is federal, and some of the state no jab, no play policies. So those are confusingly similar. And interestingly, Scott Morrison misspoke yesterday by saying that he was involved in, in implementing no jab, no play, which he was not. He was involved in implementing no jab, no pay. So the, the short definition of those is that if you have a child up to the age of 19 who is not either up to date with their scheduled vaccines according to the National Immunization um, Program schedule, or on what they call a recognized catch-up program, so you've fallen behind but you're working through getting them, or medically exempt, which is a very, very narrow criteria and, and an approval process. If you are not up to date or exempt or on a catch-up program, you can have your family assistance payments docked by the government, the federal government, it's a tax benefit. And that's no jab, no pay. No jab, no play excludes children from attending kindergarten or, or childcare services in different states if they are, again, not up to date. So that's what mandatory means here for childhood vaccination. You've mentioned Australia is one of the strictest countries in the world when it comes to vaccinations. How do we compare to other countries of a similar kind of socioeconomic level in terms of the evidence? Does it, sh the, the stricter you are, when it comes to vaccination policy, does the evidence show any difference in preventable disease rates compared to other similar countries? I would love to be able to tell you what the evidence says about Australia's no jab policies, but they have never been formally evaluated. So I cannot, nor can anyone really. However, what I can tell you is that what makes Australia's policies more strict than, for instance, you know, America's policies is the thing that made these mandatory policies really is that we removed the conscientious objection 
criteria where you could say, um, you know, I, I want my child to attend childcare. They're not up to date, but I'm filing a, a, an objection. And then they were recorded as not being vaccinated, but they could still attend childcare. Now, most countries that have exclusion type policies like that, like in America, a lot of states won't let you enroll in regular school, for instance, but they do have that objection option. Some states in America have been removing that. So California removed it. And they, they have found that to some extent, vaccination rates go up when, the, when it gets sort of, uh, when it tightens, when it gets stricter. But there are some unintended consequences. So in America, they found, for instance, that some parents took their kids out of school and homeschooled them rather than vaccinate them and, and you know, face, face that policy. And I think we've seen that in Australia to some extent. Obviously, it's not, you know, primary school, but for kindergarten and child care, early childhood education and care, some parents are taking their kids out of that. And some parents are also, obviously, you know, they're missing out on these payments. They may change their work arrangements in order to stay home. So there's some different kind of impacts that we're not really measuring and we don't really know if it's affecting people equitably. You know, it's not only people who are choosing not to vaccinate who might get caught up in this. It might be people who are behind for other reasons. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, the impact is not felt quite as keenly in families where there is a higher income than in lower income families. I mean, assuming that higher income families don't need the family tax benefit or aren't eligible to receive it even and can afford in-home childcare for early childhood. Absolutely. There's sort of a, a concern that you can kind of buy your way out of this policy, you know, if you're if you, you're a higher um, socioeconomic status, which is a real concern. Any sort of, as I said, any sort of penalty or anything like that, you, if it's about money, if it's about sort of child care access, there are some people who are going to be, who are going to feel that disadvantage much more strongly than others, which makes it, you know, sort of an inequitable policy. So would the parameters that apply to the already mandatory vaccinations that we have here reasonably apply to any COVID vaccination? Well, the main difference is going to be First and foremost, a COVID vaccine is probably not going to target children. What we know about COVID-19 as a disease is that it affects, you know, adults and, and the elderly much more seriously than children at this point, although we are aware that, you know, children are potentially transmitters and, and can get sick. The vaccine will roll out probably first to healthcare workers, maybe the elderly, people with high-risk medical conditions. Um, and potentially essential workers. So the mechanisms that we have in place for the no jab policies are irrelevant in that respect. You know, the, it's not gonna affect childcare and things like that. We do have some requirements of certain professions. So for instance, if you work in healthcare, you may have to get a flu vaccine in order to, you know, attend your work. That's not exactly a mandatory policy, although, you know, obviously you're not going to change your job if you don't want to vaccinate, but, um, you know, the, it, there's no punishment associated with it. That's the closest thing I can see ever being implemented with a COVID vaccine. The idea that, you know, certain professions might require it or else you might have to isolate or stay home if cases appear in your area or something like that. But there's just so many unknowns about a COVID vaccine that it's 
I just think it's vastly premature to be thinking about any way to enforce it at this point. I think for, you know, for people like me who had travel as a significant part of their uh, employment, I think the implications for a mandatory vaccination would be significant there to either come back into the country as I would have pre-COVID and just go about my business versus coming home and, and isolating for two weeks every time. I think that that would impact a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good point. I think travel may be something that's where a vaccine or evidence of vaccination might be relevant. But again, we don't know enough about the vaccine at this point. I mean, you may be vaccinated and the immunity may wane within a year. It may be something you have to get every year. So just the fact that you've had it, you know, doesn't necessarily mean that that can be this passport to free travel or, or whatever it, you know, we hope it might be. So this is what I mean about there's a lot of unknowns. We don't know. Uh, we do think that the vaccine is going to be kind of like the meningococcal B vaccine. It'll cause a lot of sort of local reactions to it. So it'll have um, more likely that your arm will hurt after you get it, more likely that you might get flu-like symptoms after having it. And that might mean more people can't get it. You know, people with different underlying medical conditions might not really be eligible for it. And so if you're mandating it for all kinds of things and there's whole groups of people who aren't able to get it, you know, I'm not really sure what that would mean. It would be very inequitable, right, in terms of how it rolls out that way. And when you're talking about those kind of reactions to a vaccine like the meningococcal one where there's there's a sore arm or localized pain or rashes, things like that, mm. I mean, you don't know until you get it, right? You don't know that you're part of that group yeah. until you have <laughs> the people, reaction. Yeah. Definitely. Does that mean that, you know, if you have a reaction, then, you know, when it comes to a booster, if it's not a permanent vaccination, then you would potentially be able to be exempt or how does that work? I don't know how that would work, to be honest. I mean, I think with any vaccine, as you say, you might not know that you'll have a reaction. If you have a reaction, depending on the reaction, sometimes it would mean that you, um, you know, would be exempt or, or shouldn't get another vaccine. But even with childhood vaccines, the only hard and fast criteria that allows for like a medical exemption from future vaccination is if you've had an anaphylactic reaction to a previous vaccine. So kids can have other types of reactions to a vaccine. You know, they might have, um, uh, you know, a febrile reaction, they might have a really high fever kind of thing. And that doesn't automatically exempt them from having a future vaccine. They just might need to do it sort of in the, um, you know, hospital setting or somewhere where they're sort of monitored more closely by a pediatrician. And the reason that that is, is because we understand a lot about childhood vaccines. They've been around a long time and the known benefits of those vaccines outweigh the risks of these transient or passing side effects, even if the side effects are a bit scary. But with a COVID vaccine, we don't know the vaccine well. We don't know the disease well. We don't know what the side effects will be or how, how long they might last. And we don't necessarily know that risk benefit calculation. I mean, I keep seeing in the media a reference to the race to create the vaccine that, you know, the, the one vaccine, the first vaccine. From a medical perspective, is a vaccine created and tested in such a short amount of time? 
something that we can place all of our trust in or is there a bit of kind of let's see how it goes? It's tricky. There is, I think it's important to emphasize that the vaccines that we are talking about potentially using in Australia would absolutely have gone through the clinical trial phases that we expect to see them go through, which is normally sort of phase one, phase two, and phase three. They check safety and the immune reaction that's generated by the vaccine and then um, the efficacy at preventing disease. Normally, those phases happen sequentially, and so they take quite a long time, several years. At the moment, one of the ways that they're speeding up this testing process is by overlapping those phases. So they'll start the safety trial. If the people in that trial look like they're okay, they start the next phase where it checks what the immune reaction is. The first phase is still ongoing. So they're still collecting that information. So they check the immune reaction. If it's generating an immune reaction, then they start this third efficacy phase, which is where a lot of these vaccines are at the moment. Much bigger population, more varied people that they give the vaccine to. They're still testing the safety as well in all of this. Um, And that phase will go for a while. And at the end of that, because they're sort of hoping that this will work, they've already started production. So again, that would normally start after all of this is done, but they've already started the production. If all these three phases generate an acceptable safety and efficacy profile, if they're successful, the vaccine's already produced and they roll it out. So that's why it can happen so quickly. But there are definitely some downsides of doing it that quickly. One of them is that no matter how varied and large your study population is for that third phase, when you scale that up to millions and millions of people, billions of people, you are going to uncover very, very rare side effects, which you might not have seen in that other group. So the reason that we even accept this potential risk is because we are experiencing so much risk from the disease right now. Yeah. I've read that this isn't the first time that humans have used an unproven vaccine at scale. So one case I read of was the polio vaccine in the 50s and the Ebola vaccine in more recent years, and that both of those were done without placebo-controlled trials. And there seemed to be no you know, negative outcomes from that, according to what I read, I guess it makes me wonder about the kind of the race to, to create the vaccine and the risk of relaxing those accepted scientific standards that we've, we've come to expect. uh, And we've come to need because there have been mistakes done in the past From an ethical perspective, how do you weigh up the risks of harm to a small proportion of people who will, like you say, have some sort of rare reaction versus the need for herd immunity? Ethically, this is probably always going to be a question, right? Um, Weighing up risks to a few for the benefit of the greater good. I think it's important to do as much due diligence as we can for safety. So for instance, it's considered highly controversial that in Russia, they have rolled out a vaccine without going through the phase three study. They basically took the first two phases, said this might look, you know, might work, might be okay, and are now rolling it out to their population. So that is an unacceptable risk in my view and is sort of would be, I think, unethical. But as I said, we are considering this calculation differently because 
so many people are becoming sick and dying from COVID. Um, it, whole economies are, you know, collapsing because of this disease. If this vaccine has rare side effects, but a large protective value, then ultimately we are still saving more lives than than if we do nothing. I think it's probably weighs really heavily on the people that are developing these vaccines. And it should weigh very heavily on governments and public health officials before they take the decision to introduce a vaccine in the population. One other article I read talked about that accelerating the process of vaccine development is potentially going against the Hippocratic Oath of doing no harm. And then conversely, in that same article, they talked about the philosophical perspective of Kant, who argues that whatever the positive consequences, we have no right to harm anyone. What do you think of that? Wow, we're going into philosophy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I disagree that, that rapidly developing a vaccine goes against the Hippocratic Oath. I think that negligence that leads to death is also unacceptable. So that would be failing to develop a vaccine and just watching people continue to get sick and die from COVID. So rushing a vaccine also does not guarantee harm is being done. I think that's I think people are very afraid of potential risks from vaccines. We're conditioned that vaccines are given to healthy people in a healthy population where you don't see this disease. So they're held to a really, really high standard of causing no harm, which I think is a, is a good standard. But at the same time, you know, almost no medical intervention is completely without any risk. And you have to keep taking it back to the actual situation that we are in, which is a global pandemic with millions of people dying. I think it's an acceptable balance to move quickly through scientifically rigorous testing processes. And also, I think it's really important to note that once a vaccine is rolled out, at least in Australia, it will continue to be very closely monitored for safety. So, you know, it's not like it just happens and then it's gotten away from us and it goes about causing all this harm. I mean, we are going to be monitoring and monitoring every adverse reaction, anything that might be related to it, pulling it if it's causing any problems. So I think we have an ongoing responsibility to do that. I would also just mention, I think it's gotten a bit of traction in the news recently. Australia is one of, well, there are 25 countries, I believe, other than Australia, who have a vaccine injury compensation scheme, a no-fault injury compensation scheme. Australia does not have this. And I think it's time to revisit that, especially if any mandatory element is brought in, in this case, because we know that vaccines can cause rare, serious side effects, and people should be adequately supported if that does happen to them. And again, from a, you know, I I do go back to the philosophical question there or the ethical side of things and say, is one person suffering a severe vaccine reaction or injury okay if however many other people do not get sick and die from that disease? You're going to put me in a push me into a corner. I think I think I would say yes because of the enormous weight of lives saved through vaccination and suffering and um you know even down the list just productivity and you know it's just such a huge benefit to have the population 
safely protected from these diseases. But of course, it's always tragic if someone is harmed by anything, by accident, by medical intervention. So that's where I think the the no-fault injury compensation scheme is really important because we should be acknowledging that this is a, is a very small but serious risk and people shouldn't be, you know, destitute on top of being injured. So I want to talk about social media a little bit. Um, okay. <laughs> there's a lot of information and memes and, you know, posts going around about COVID, about lockdown, about vaccinations. Um, and I, I, I wanted to kind of put forward a few of the arguments that people are putting up on social media. One of them that I see a lot is that COVID has a death rate of, you know, or a survival rate of 97 point something percent versus the flu, which the, the common flu, which has, and I, I don't, I don't recall the, the rate of the flu, but it's used often as a kind of a justification for not wanting to be in lockdown or not wanting to have uh, vaccinations or, or not wanting to see, you know, the economy essentially shut down for something that people are saying is a 97 point something percent survival rate. I mean, I've seen a lot of that information as well. And I, I know the flu survival rate or flu death rate versus COVID death rate was being shared a lot, especially in the beginning of the pandemic. And as far as I remember, it's still like a tenfold difference, like 10 times as many people die who get COVID than get the flu. It's just that a huge more number of people get the flu every year. Like it's, right. you know, larger figure there. But this argument sounds very abstract when people talk about percentages and, you know, it's a 97% survival rate. Well, if you have 100 million people in your country and they all become infected, 3 million people in your country are going to die from this disease. So it becomes very rapidly, becomes clear that this is not an acceptable casualty rate, I don't think by anyone's terms, once you actually put it in terms of human life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're seeing a lot of, um, you know, here in Victoria, for example, people getting fines daily for breaking lockdown laws. And often they'll say, oh, it's just a mild virus. I don't believe it. I don't believe what they're saying. Obviously, there's a lot of fear in the community right now, and it's exacerbated by being in lockdown. And, you know, the vast majority of us have not lived through something like this. How can, you know, government, when talking about vaccines and things like that, how can they start to alleviate some of that fear rather than perpetuate it as we saw yesterday? I think this is a really tricky line that the communication sort of has to has to walk because you know on the one hand if people think it's not serious then as you say they flout the restrictions and they go out and um and and do things that increase their and other people's risk so i i think the government has been taking quite a hard scary approach you know this isn't just the flu it's really dangerous and sort of almost hammering that home and also we're going to find you we're going to get you we're going to it's it's policed i you know they've taken quite a scary approach i think to the communication the problem is that this you know sort of helps in you know convinces some people maybe but we also need an empathetic 
kind of communication. So Jacinda Ardern has been widely commended for the way that she communicates to the New Zealand public about the disease and about the lockdown restrictions. And they're often talking about how empathetic she is. So she says, I know this is hard. I've had to have virtual dinner parties with my friends. I really miss going out and doing this. But, you know, we're all in this together. We really need to just do these things and then we'll have this impact and, you know, explaining all of the decision-making process that she's gone through with her advisors and things. I'm not saying that just kumbaya will get us through it either, but I think there's a balance there. And I think that, you know, continually frightening people or continually punishing people is not considered particularly effective for behavior change in any context. Yeah, there's certainly a vast difference between the communication style of Scott Morrison and Jacinta Ardern. Yeah. So in your opinion, what is the best way to go about communicating any legislation or policy around a potential future vaccine in Australia? Well, I think there's a few key points that we need to think about in the communication about a vaccine and just sort of in general in our communication about, you know, public health measures around COVID. Uh, And this is based on principles of risk communication and, um, you know, studies around um, public trust and things like that. So, So the key principles, I think, are we need to use the right spokespeople So that means choosing people who are trusted because they have demonstrated competence, they're they're fair, you know, technical experts, they're not politicized. Also, it's really important to include spokespeople who are part of different groups in the community. So engaging with culturally and linguistically diverse groups, other, you know, different groups that just have, uh, have their own uh, you know, languages and ways of communicating, bringing those leaders from those groups out as spokespeople is more effective than sort of talking down to people from one, one source. Another key point is that we need to make sure that the information that we give people is tailored to actually get to them and make sense to them. So we know that people have different levels of literacy and of health literacy. So we, you know, just lots of words on a page isn't really going to get to everyone. Certainly, not everyone speaks English as a first language. Not everyone uses social media or the TV or, you know, one channel for communication. So it needs to be much more, uh, again, engaging with different communities and using a whole range of different strategies to reach people. Another main point is that this is where I think we've, you know, misstepped a bit by jumping straight to mandatory vaccination ideas. It's acceptable and we should expect people to have concerns and questions about this vaccine. So all of the communication about it needs to come from a place of normalizing that and providing the evidence that we do have, being really transparent, explaining the safety studies that have, you know, the vaccine has gone through, being really upfront about what side effects we expect and and how, you know, how effective we expect the vaccine to be, being really clear that Sometimes our message might change if more evidence comes through later. That's okay. You know, just being transparent about that. I think one of the mistakes with some of the mask communication was that the message changed from don't get a mask to you have to have a mask. But they didn't really explain that it, there were a number of changes in the situation with transmission and also in the evidence that we were actually getting about how good a mask 
was at preventing transmission, you know, things changed. And I think the public is smarter than they're given credit for. So, uh, yeah, so I would be really, I think transparency is also really important. And sorry, I just say the last really important factor is to continually get feedback and check in with the public. So even when the vaccine's rolled out, I think there needs to be a constant two-way kind of communication process to check in with people. Yeah, I do think that uh, in terms of the mask wearing, I think some of that, what could be seen as chopping and changing of, of information really fuels the resistance to to wearing masks and erodes trust in government messaging, which obviously will have an impact further down the road when it comes to anything to do with COVID. Absolutely. And and yet if you sort of, I mean, I saw some, some good articles that spelled it out. You know, they were sort of saying we didn't have, um, you know, the actual studies that had been done about how effective this mask was against that. We also had a global shortage of PPE and we were really worried that if we um, advised the public to all get masks, they'd hoard them and we wouldn't have any masks for the doctors. And finally, in Australia, the community transmission rate was really low earlier in the process. And, you know, then it became much higher. I think if they just said that all changed, this is the situation now. So can you please wear a mask? I'm not saying everyone would have run out and bought a mask, but I just think people need to be brought on that journey when the message does change. I think there's something in there, though, about kind of walking a fine line between government playing an authoritative role and saying, we we know what's going on, we're in charge, you can trust us, we've got you, we'll keep you safe, and admitting that, hey, we're actually all learning as we go because this is new and it's unprecedented. And in terms of access to information, citizens have enormous access to current information and ways to understand it and absorb it because of the internet, uh, sometimes faster than government can get statements out. So I think, yeah, there's, there's definitely something in there around walking that line between, as you say, being open and honest about it being a process, but actually allaying the fear and uncertainty as well. Definitely. I think more leaders should recognize that if you earn trust by being sort of transparent, this is because it doesn't just happen overnight, right? You've got political leaders who are there through lots of crises. We had the bushfires just before this, you know. Uh, If you demonstrate that you have people's best interests in mind, that you use evidence to inform your decisions, that you're not afraid to admit when you're wrong, I think over the course of, uh, you know, a political career or, or an appointment as a leader in any position that builds trust. And then you've got that trust. People have that trust for you when you do need to say, everything's going to be okay. We're going to figure this out. People already trust you. You can't just come in and say, listen to us. We've got it under control. If you've never demonstrated a reason for people to believe in you. Well, Jess, I'm going to wind it up a little bit now. Before we finish though, I want to ask you, what book are you reading at the moment? I just got a new book in the mail yesterday that I'm really excited about. It's called Priest Daddy. It's by Patricia Lockwood. And it was recommended to me by two of my really good friends from America who have very strange 
senses of humor that I really relate to. So I'm really looking forward to it. It's a memoir by a woman whose dad was an ordained Catholic priest. Wow. Fascinating. (laughs) And what about podcasts? Do you listen to them? I love podcasts. Currently, I have a lot in my to listen pile, but the one that I always pop up to the top when it comes through is Bang On with Miff Warhurst and Zan Rowe. They just talk about art and culture and a little bit of politics every week. And it just feels really soothing. They're both in lockdown in Melbourne. I feel like they're my friends. (laughs) (laughs) It's nice to just sort of zone out and, and listen to them and get some recommendations of books to read and music to listen to from them. Nice. I love the name of it. Bang on. Bang on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is that a very Australian thing? I think so. Yeah. To bang on. Yeah. Yeah. For non-Australian listeners, that means to talk a lot, basically. (laughs) We're banging on right now. (laughs) Yeah, we are banging on. (laughs) Jess, thank you so much for your time and your insight and knowledge. It's such a, it's strange time for everybody right now. And I think, as we said, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. And I think having advice coming from lots of different kind of spaces can be overwhelming, but it's good to understand things from a, from a different perspective sometimes. Well, thanks for having me. And I I just like to reassure people, I guess, that there's lots of really good people producing really reliable and relevant information about the pandemic and about vaccines. Obviously it can be, it can seem hard to find, you know, to figure out what's right and what's not, but I guess try to avoid going down the sensationalist rabbit holes if you can and look for some good solid thinking. I think the conversation is a good place to go to read if you want some easy to digest articles about the issues that you're seeing. Most of the people that write for the conversation are researchers or academics or or, um, otherwise qualified in that respect. So try not to be too frightened by uh, sensational media reporting about things. Yeah. And where can we find you on social media? Uh, The main place to find me uh, talking about vaccination is on Twitter, where I'm Jessica J. Kaufman. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jaja Wurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. Do you want to learn more about doing better at doing good? I work with leaders from the business, nonprofit, and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical, and sustainable impact. I also offer coaching and mentoring to individuals and small business owners on how to integrate purpose and create positive impact. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at underscore Lee Matthews or check out my website at www.leematthews.com. Don't forget to subscribe and share.